So if you've been around TECC for any amount of time, you know that if I'm preaching this morning, we must be dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. I swear I am the Jeremiah of this church. Uh, So there that is. Thankful to be here with you all this morning and to open God's word with you. So if you would go ahead and turn to our text today, which is Luke 22, 1 through 30. And as you turn there, um, I want to tell you a story about how things were and still are not the way they're supposed to be. In March of 1944, German-occupied Hungary extended the Holocaust into that country. Eli Weissel was 15 years old when he and his family were placed in one of the two confinement ghettos set up in the town where he had been born and raised. Think about that going from the freedom of being able to play with your friends whenever you wanted to being confined in abhorrent conditions. But just a couple of months later, in May of that same year, things would get much worse as the Hungarian authorities, under pressure from the Germans, began to deport this Jewish community to Auschwitz, where upon arrival, up to 90% of the people were murdered immediately. This was no different for Weissel and his family. In fact, his mother and his younger sister were murdered. Their train arrived at the camp. Weissel and his father were selected instead to perform labor so long as they were able-bodied. But even after that, it was almost certain that they too would meet their end in death. Yet Weissel and his father were later deported to another concentration camp in Buchenwald, escaping the horrors of Auschwitz, they thought. The greatest horror yet came at the arrival at Buchenwald for Weissel as he looked on as his father was beaten to death for his eyes. This happened just three months before American forces liberated that camp. He describes these events in his book, Night, writing, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Church, though these events transpired over 60 and 70 years ago, 
They find us here today, right now, still longing for the world to be a different way. We long for a world in which kids don't take guns to schools and murder other kids. We long for a world where black and brown children aren't gunned down in the streets. We long for a world where civil world is no more, where hunger is eradicated. We long for a world that is as it should be. So as we come to Luke 22 today, it is undeniable that the world is not as it should be. Yet we find in Luke 22 the hope of a kingdom that is arranged as it should be. A place where there is no suffering. A kingdom where there is no pain. Where every tear has been wiped away and we find not just this kingdom but an invitation into it. So as we open our text today, we find that this was written to us to help us remember the greatness of the kingdom of God and to lead us to long for it. Luke does this by introducing us anew to the Passover feast and to Jesus, our true Passover lamb. Luke shows us in this text that this new Passover lamb forms a new covenant and brings about a new kingdom. We see in the text that this kingdom feast that we have been invited to share in has as its context suffering in verses 1 through 6. Its power, providence, in verses 7 through 13. Its sustenance, the joy of God himself, in verses 14 through 23. And as its end, in verses 24 through 30. Greatness forevermore. Let's pray. God, we have together spent the majority of this morning singing how great you are. But honestly, God, our hearts are filled with doubt. We see suffering at work in the world. We feel pain in our lives and we wonder how in the world it is that you could be the good and great God that you claim to be. God, I pray today through your word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would work in power to open our eyes to the beauty of what you have accomplished in Jesus. God, we cry out for your spirit to do a work today, to cast out Satan, to soften our heart, and to draw us to repentance. That God, you would meet us here with a feast of holy joy that we could leave behind the emptiness of the promises of grandeur of this world and find satisfaction in you. God, I pray that we would leave today remembering the greatness of your kingdom, that God, we would indeed long for it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.
So as we enter the text today, we discover two things right off the bat. Verse 1, we find out that it's time almost for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called the Passover. And in verse 2 and following, we find out that the time for Jesus' death has almost arrived. And as we read the first couple of verses of this text, we're left with, I think, one really important question. What in the world is the Passover? You see, for the last year we've been walking through the book of Luke and this point hasn't been clarified. If you've been tracking along with us and maybe you're pretty new to this whole church thing, you may have no idea what this Passover thing is. Well, to understand this feast, because that's what it is, and to understand our text today, we're going to have to journey back to the Old Testament, to a time early in the Scriptures, to the book of Exodus. When we go there, we find that at the beginning of that book, that in the land of Egypt, there's a people, God's people, the Israelites. And here we find them as fruitful and multiplying in the land. And as we read these opening verses in Exodus, it seems like maybe, just maybe, everything is finally the way that it's supposed to be. You see, God called us in Genesis to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. And this is exactly what we find the Israelites doing in the opening verses of Exodus. So maybe we begin to think as we're reading Exodus that finally, as a nation, the Israelites are going to be able to fulfill their destiny, to bless the world. And what's amazing is up until this point, In Exodus, the Israelites were able to do that. The administrations in Egypt gave them freedom. Freedom to work, to worship, and to fulfill their God-given purpose in the land. But very quickly things turn in another direction. As in verse 8, we're introduced to a new king who sensed in the numbers of God's people in Egypt a threat to his own power. And as a result, this new king has decided that he is going to deal shrewdly with the Israelites. And these shrewd dealings come in the form of cruel punishment, the murder of infants, oppression and suffering and death. The Egyptian masters worked the Israelites ruthlessly, made their lives bitter. And as a result, Israel languished in misery and suffering that broke their very spirit. Even work, one of the chief purposes and joys of human existence that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, was turned into a misery by the harshness of the oppression that had befallen them. This certainly was not the way it was supposed to be. And so, as we come to Exodus 2, The people of God cry out because of their slavery. Read with me in Exodus 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Don't miss this. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And he saw the people of Israel and he knew. We read this in Exodus and we expect things to change really quickly. The cries of God's people reach his ears. He bends his ear from heaven and hears the pain of his people. And yet, in Exodus, deliverance does not come immediately after these verses. Oppression continues and actually grows until it reaches its climax in chapter 12. But this does not mean that God is not at work during this time. No, God is at work in the midst of the oppression and the suffering that the Israelites faced, raising up a leader, Moses, that he would use to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And in Exodus 12, we find that God uses Moses to bring about plague after plague to try to force the hand of this ruthless regime into freeing the people of God. And yet time and time again, their liberation is thwarted by the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So God, having heard the cries of his people, is intent on freeing them by sending one last plague into the land. Now this plague is different from what he's done before. This time God is going to kill the firstborn of every one every person, every beast in the land. All the way from Pharaoh the king to the captive in the dungeon to the cattle in the field. They are not under the protection of God. Death to those firstborns will surely come. Even so, before the plagues come, even, for, even so, before this plague comes, before this deliverance arrives, God interrupts the unfolding of his plan to bring freedom and instead institutes a feast. What is this feast? It's the feast of unleavened bread, the Passover that we just read about at the beginning of our text. The people of God in Exodus, in order to gain protection from the plague to come and to remember God's faithfulness to His covenant and His faithfulness to deliver them, were to eat bitter herbs that they would remember their suffering in Egypt. They were to eat unleavened bread to know that they do not even have time for their bread to rise because of the anticipation that they have for deliverance from God. And they were to take the blood of a lamb and apply it to the doorpost that God's wrath would pass over them that they would remember the salvation of the Lord. There were feasts that were happening in the land that nomads did that were similar to this. But this changes all of that completely. You see, instead of this being about some pacification to the gods, this sacrifice being made by God's people became a gift of gratitude to him and a catalyst of communion among families. Instead of some charming effort to put at bay evil spirits, 
The blood became a mark of protection for God's people. That he would surely do what he had said he was going to do. The bitter herbs and unleavened bread eaten with the sacrifice became reminders of their suffering and bondage and oppression and of their anxious longing for deliverance. And so the people of God in the midst of their suffering and oppression stopped. They shared a meal. And after this meal, God was certainly faithful to do what he had promised. As he struck down the firstborn of Egypt and delivered them from captivity. And yet we find God's people in Luke 22 in not much of a different spot. They're oppressed under the rule of an evil empire. They're crushed under the weight of a corrupt priesthood. So we enter this text arriving here and knowing that God's people are preparing to celebrate this feast and yet they are still longing for deliverance. Look with me at Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that's Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. We see in this text that the one who could offer deliverance, Jesus, is a threat to all of those who are in power. To the priest, to the government, and even to Satan himself. As I mentioned earlier, we've been walking through Luke for a while now. And if you remember all the way back to Luke 4, we learned that Satan tempted Jesus for a period of time. And then he was going to leave him until the opportune time. We find now in verse 3 that that opportune time has come. And we see that at the outset of the advance of God's kingdom, we cannot expect for Satan to stand idly by. And so we begin this text with him at work hardening the hearts of the priests and even at work in hardening the heart of one of Jesus' disciples, Judas. But this is no different from what he has done in the past. Just as Satan was at work hardening the heart of Pharaoh to prevent the deliverance of God's people, so we find him at work again here at the opportune time to try to prevent the deliverance of God's people. The meal that was instituted in Exodus 12 and the one that we look forward to now in Luke 22, they share a context. It is a context of both suffering and of salvation, of bondage and of deliverance, of death and life, of judgment and of grace. The context of this text and of this meal means that not for one second can we overlook oppression, injustice, suffering, or pain in anyone else's lives or in our own. It means that we cannot minimize sin 
or downplay the judgment of God. But rather, its purpose is to call us to remember both the depth of our suffering and the power of God's salvation to deliver us. It invites us to both lament and to feast. It calls us to taste and see that despite oppression and bondage in the world, that God is good. He hears. He knows. And He is providentially at work to remind you even right now today of the greatness of his coming kingdom to lead you to long for it. So if the context of this kingdom feast is suffering as we've seen, then it is the providence of God that is the means and power that brings it about. Look back with me at the text starting in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover feast for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And then tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The time for the Passover feast has finally arrived and Jesus here in this text instructs Peter and John to go and to prepare the meal for them. There's a problem. They have no means for which to prepare this meal, no location in which to eat it, no lamb to sacrifice, no bread and no herbs. Yet we see in the text that Jesus is at work so that every provision that is required for them to fulfill the law and to share this meal together is, in fact, accomplished. Jesus provides a place inside of Jerusalem for them to share the Passover feast that they would not break the law. Jesus provides the elements of the meal, even though, as we'll see in the next portion of our text, this isn't done in the manner that they expect. In every single way, God is at work to bring about not just the deliverance of his people, but to provide for them both a place and a feast so that they would recall when God remembered his covenant and redeemed his people. But questions still remain. If God delivered his people from oppression from the Egyptians, would God rescue them from the Romans? When would the Messiah come? When would the kingdom arrive? And if you're a disciple of Jesus, one looming question certainly remained. Is Jesus the Son of God? The long-awaited Savior? Church, the answer is yes. 
As we've seen, as we have walked throughout the book of Luke, God is at work to bring about the deliverance his people most need, and he is going to do it through the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, we find that the throne of the Messiah will be anointed and eternal, just as it's foretold in the Psalms and in Daniel. In Luke 3, we find the messenger that paves the way for the Messiah is John the Baptist, just as was outlined in Isaiah 40. In Luke 4, we see that the Messiah is the one who is sent to heal the brokenhearted, just as Isaiah wrote in chapter 61 of his book. Even here in Luke 22, we have seen the fulfillment of the Psalms and of Zechariah that the Messiah would indeed be betrayed. Luke has labored and labored to remind us, even here in the provision of this feast, that everything that is happening is under God's good and sovereign reign. And so as we look forward to the crucifixion of Jesus, the rejection of the gospel by the Jews, the extension of the divine promise and hope to the Gentile world, all of this is following along to the exact divine plan of God. Luke goes on in Acts to write that Jesus was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Church, we have not arrived here by accident. Jesus has sent his disciples to prepare a meal that has been prepared since the foundation of the world. Why does this providence matter to me? May be the question that you're asking. It's a fair question. It's fair to ask how long, O Lord. Church, just as God was not unaware of the suffering of his people in Exodus and just and is, he is not unaware in the text today of the suffering of his people. He is not unaware of your suffering today. Your cries reach the ear of God. He hears. He knows. Just as he gave the Israelites a Passover feast to share together, so he has certainly, as we will see, given us a perfect Passover lamb whose blood will cover our transgressions and protect us from judgment. Church, it is the providential power of God at work in human history that has brought about the deliverance that we most need. So, we see in the text that we are next invited into this furnished upper room to share the Passover feast. Look at me in the text. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe, But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And so they, the disciples, begin to question one another as to which one of them is going to do this. Luke in verses 21 and 22 reminds us that we cannot escape the context of this meal. The entire scene is centered around Jesus' suffering that is to come. Yet in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus invites the disciples to share in the joy that even in this moment is sustaining him. He invites them to the table eagerly, earnestly desiring to feast with them now and forevermore. Look at the text in verse 15. As he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Oh, how long Christ had looked forward to this meal. To the moment where he would share in the joy of the coming salvation with his disciples. Where he would teach them of the new covenant that would be written in his blood. And bring to conclusion finally his work on earth ushering in the kingdom of God. Look back at the text. In the following verses, Christ indicates that he will share this meal and leave this meal with his disciples until the time when he is able to share it with them again at the consummation, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Why does he leave us this meal? The answer to this question comes in the answer of another question. You see, traditionally, as the Passover meal was being eaten, Someone in the room, usually the youngest person there, would ask the question, why is this night different from other nights? And the host of the Passover meal, in this case, Jesus, would recount the Exodus story as we've done this morning and tell of God's remembering of his covenant. But here, in this text, Jesus leaves us with a new story and with a new feast. In doing so, Christ calls us to remember a new God-wrought, blood-bought covenant that he is forming in his own blood. Jesus is leaving us this meal that we would remember that we were slaves to our sin but now have been delivered from them with the same certainty that God's people were delivered from the Egyptians. He reminds us that this night is different because the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood of Jesus himself has secured for us mercy from the righteous wrath of God. 
And as 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed that we would no longer be bound up by the sin that oppresses us. That we would no longer be under the rule and reign of lust and idolatry and addiction and gossip and of scornful words. He himself has borne our sins in his body on the tree that we might be free to die to sin and live for righteousness And it is truly in the depths of his wounds that we find joy unspeakable to heal our souls. He leaves us this meal that we would remember the greatness of the coming kingdom of God and that we would, with everything in us, long for that day. Church, it is the joy of Christ himself that is the sustenance that we need to feed on in this life to persevere until that time when we will share in the joy of this meal with Jesus himself. This feast, in fact, produces in the follower of Jesus the very longing that we've talked about all day today for the day that we will share in all of the glories of the consummated kingdom. And yet, We sit here today and we still long. The fullness of this kingdom and all of its greatness has not yet come. Sin and death and disease still exist. Injustice, oppression, war and pain still seem to reign. And even still, God in bringing about our deliverance calls us to stop and to feast. that we would remember the sweetness of the coming kingdom. We are again, as in Luke 11, left to pray earnestly for the coming of the kingdom. We are led by this meal to long for the day as in Luke 6 when the hungry will be fed and the weeping will laugh and the scorned and the reviled will be redeemed forevermore. This meal, the fulfillment of this Passover feast is the feast that we come to the table to eat today. So today we can lament and feast. We can find salvation amidst our Oppression. And in the midst of the deepest, darkest pain in your heart, you can find joy inexhaustible in Jesus. So today, as we eat this meal, I pray that we will eat as the Israelites did in the Exodus, anxiously awaiting our deliverance. You may have another question. What do I do after I feast? Now I need you to stay with me here because this part isn't in Luke 22. But in Mark's account of this same meal, we discover that the answer to that question in Mark 14 is that we sing hymns. In Mark 14, 26, the Passover meal comes to a conclusion and they sing a hymn and then they go out on their way to the Mount of Olives. 
So what song did they sing? Well, traditionally, the Passover meal would end with a hymn sung from the Hillel Psalms, which are 111 to 117. Now, you may be looking at your phone, your watch, and see what time it is and be like, is Josh really going to read through Psalm 111 to 117? Um, That would be awesome, but no, I'm not. Um, We're going to read how the song ends by looking at parts of Psalm 116, Psalm 117, so that we can understand what happens next. So look with me at the text to understand what the disciples sang. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. They sang, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, the Lord saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And in verses 12 and 13, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Their song would end in Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is the steadfast love of the Lord toward us, and the faithfulness of him endures forever. Praise the Lord. Growing up, there's a pastor of mine back in Tennessee. His name is Dr. Hubbard. Every Easter, this cat would dress up in the most Baptist way possible in an all-white suit with white shoes. And I remember he would sing a song that we sang this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And he would sing it so loudly with such intensity that his face would turn red and his neck would bulge and he looked like an awkward lobster in a white suit. But this man loved Jesus and he longed for the day when he would see him face to face. And I remember one particular Easter Sunday he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's that was beginning to onset. And he sat on this stage and he sang with everything in him, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, to me. And he wept And he sang it with everything that was in him because everything that was in him longed for the greatness of the kingdom. And he knew it would be his because God's faithfulness toward him would not fail. It didn't fail in the Exodus. It doesn't fail us in Luke's gospel. And it will not fail us today. 
God has not left us with a feast to remind us of the greatness of the coming of the kingdom alone. He's left us with hearts that are full of joy that explode in song. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. Lift up the cup of salvation and call right now if you are broken, if you are hurting, if you are beaten down by your sin. Call on the name of the Lord and find their deliverance that you need. We need this feast. We need these songs to remind us of the greatness of the insurmountable worth of Christ and of his kingdom. We need it because we're quick to forget and slow to remember. This is where our text ends today. We see it in verses 21 through 23 and we see it in the next section. This meal that is supposed to call us to remember leads in our forgetting. Judas walked with Jesus for three years and saw all of the glories of God on display and yet was committed to betray him. And as we walk into the next part of the text, God himself, Jesus, in the presence of the disciples has just shown his greatness, his power to deliver them from their sin. And yet they turn around and in verse 24, quarrel over who is going to be the greatest in this kingdom. Look with me at the text. Starting in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom. And he said to them, the king's of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest or the least, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am telling you, I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Church, I need us to stop right here. And realize one really sombering thought. It's this, participation in the Lord's Supper then and now does not guarantee someone a place in God's kingdom. Judas ate of this meal with the other eleven, yet betrayed the one who loved him. This meal and the stories of the failures of the disciples that follow it should bring about caution and pause should lead us to ask ourselves what it means to share in the Lord's table in his kingdom. Should cause us to ask, do I long most for the coming of God's kingdom or is there another longing in my life that has taken captive my heart? Church, if that's the case, Jesus has come to set you free. You should ask yourself, how am I at work in oppressing others in this world? 
Because in this text we find that there is grace for both the oppressed and the oppressor. This is the thrust of this last story. That we are quick to misunderstand. Quick to forget. And slow to remember the greatness of God. You see, this isn't even the first time in the book of Luke for the disciples that this quarrel has taken place. Yet here in Luke 22, Jesus once again patiently reminds the disciples the greatness in the kingdom of God stands in opposition to the greatness of the kingdoms of the world. The being first in the kingdom means being last. That this kingdom is brought about not in arrogant power, but in lowly humility. We know this in the text because Jesus, who is the linchpin of history, the savior of the world, he did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so doing, he leaves us an example today. Eating this meal forces us to deal with whether or not we understand what the kingdom is about at all. It causes us to question our motives for the way that we work, for how we live in our homes, for the way that we treat our spouse and our children. It confronts our laziness. It attacks our pride. The table today beckons us to come and to be broken and to understand that it is in that brokenness that we find entrance into the kingdom of God. Look back at the text. Starting in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. So that we can eat and drink at the table of the Lord in his kingdom and sit on thrones. You may have one last question left. What is this feast that we are going to share with Jesus? Church, it is the hope that my heart longs for. Turn with me to Revelation 19. And in verse 6, we find this. The author writes, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What we eat and drink today is a foretaste of what we will eat and drink forevermore. It is our hope. It is the joy that propels us out into this world to live recklessly for the mission of God because there is nothing that Satan can do to us. There is nothing that this world can take from us because everything that is ultimately valuable, we already have in Jesus and we will share it with him forevermore in his kingdom. So what is this kingdom that we'll share in? For that we go to the very end of the book. Revelation 21. The author writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And do not miss this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And we can trust this because God's word says for the author to write this down. Because the words are themselves trustworthy and true. Christ has not just left us with his work, he has left us with a feast that we, like those delivered from the oppression in the Exodus, would look back on the faithfulness of God's past grace and be propelled in confident joy toward the greatness of his future grace to us in heaven. We were given this meal that we would share afresh in Christ's joy, remembering the faithfulness of God to his covenant. And that we today would long with groaning inexpressible for the coming kingdom of God. You might be saying now, right preacher, but what does that have to do? You don't know my life. You don't know crushing anxiety that I face every day. I may not. But I promise you, Jesus does. And in every place where you have failed, he has already succeeded on your behalf in grace. The one beaten down by injustice today Can I tell you that your hope is in heaven when God will perfectly judge and make all things new? Church, this meal is for you and me that we would taste 
and know the glories and the joys of Jesus Christ and his work that has already been accomplished for us. Many of you today may have never tasted that before. You may be far off from God and your question today may be, Why are things not the way they're supposed to be? You've tried everything in this world to find an answer and there hasn't been one. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is the answer? I would be happy to tell you of the times in my life when I have suffered deeply and the sweetness of the joy that I have found in the depth of that suffering as I've entered into Christ's wounds and found their grace inexpressible. So whether you are close to the Lord or far away from Him, the message is the same. God's kingdom is great. It's coming. And our hope is to long for it. Let's pray. God, my heart, it longs to be with you because Sometimes the pain of this world is really, it's just, it's too much. But God, you are at work goodly and sovereignly right now to bring salvation to your people. You are not unaware of our suffering. You have not turned a blind eye to what is happening in the world. You have not turned your ear away from our cries, but rather you bend your ear from heaven to hear the lament of your people. So God, I pray that as we come to the table, as we feast on the joy of Jesus as we worship you in song, that God, you would grant us pause before we do that. That if there is strife between us and another person in this room, that God, we would, in the power of the Spirit, seek healing and restoration of those relationships. God, if our hearts have been captivated by other longings, that we would confess that to you and in that confession find forgiveness and liberation from the bondage of sin. And God, for the person whose heart in here is cold and dead today under the weight of everything that is happening in this broken world. I pray that you would break through and make dead hearts alive in the power of the gospel today. And that in doing so, you would lead people to find the hope that they have always longed for, the joy that they have always craved, and that they would be invited into an eternal kingdom forevermore. So God, I pray that your spirit would cast Satan out from this place, that you would meet with us now, that you would work in power to do this thing. Help us to long for heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray.